starting to escalate and could spiral out of control at any moment. Missile strikes in Syria and Iraq make a wider regional conflict more and more of a possibility. All of this is the death toll in Gaza approaches 25,000. For Saturday, January 20th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll look at serious allegations being made against the Georgia DA who filed charges against Donald Trump. And four years on, we're still trying to understand long COVID. Long COVID has affected every part of my life now. I wake up every day feeling tired, nauseous, and dizzy. I immediately start planning when I can lay down again. Plus a look at the other New Hampshire primary and what complicates President Biden's efforts to win it. And I don't have a problem with him not thinking we're the most important thing on the planet. But as a New Hampshire voter, I want to show him that we've got his back. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is questioning former President Trump's mental competence. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, she's sharpening her criticism heading into the New Hampshire primary that takes place next Tuesday. At a rally in Concord Friday night, Trump was complaining that no one talks about the size of his crowd on January 6th when he seemed to blame Haley for rioters overrunning the Capitol. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. They're saying he got confused. Nikki Haley, who wasn't in government or anywhere near Washington in 2021, responded Saturday morning at her own smaller rally. We can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do this. We can't. It was one of her biggest applause lines. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Keene, New Hampshire. Israel has agreed to allow shipments of flour bound for Gaza to flow through an Israeli port near the enclave. The White House announced this after a phone call between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. NPR's Becky Sullivan has more from Tel Aviv. The announcement comes after the heads of three U.N. agencies had called on Israel to open its port in Ashdod, about 20 miles north of Gaza, to shipments of humanitarian aid. An Israeli official told NPR a significant amount of flour is due to enter, followed by more over time, for millions of dollars worth in total. Flour and other food assistance arrives daily to southern Gaza, but aid groups say much more is needed, including in northern Gaza, which is mostly inaccessible from the south due to fighting and damaged roads. For many Palestinians, every day is spent struggling to find clean water and food. The UN warns that Gaza's entire population of 2.2 million people is at imminent risk of famine. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. It's been bitterly cold with heavy snows, gusty winds and rain in much of the country these past couple of weeks. And more is on tap for this weekend. The National Weather Service says another Arctic blast will bring dangerous wind chills from the plains to the east coast, with the southeast up through the northeast dealing with frigid temperatures today, too. But forecaster Bob Orovic says, hang on, warmer weather is on the way soon. There's approximately 132 million people there under some type of winter advisory, wind chill advisories, hard freeze warnings, um, winter storm warnings. So it's definitely highly impactful weather event over the next two days before we see a more moderating of the temperatures next week. And that means temperatures above freezing from the Midwest up to New England, which will help with that melting snow. Temperatures in the Mid-Atlantic could hit the mid-50s next week, and officials say over the past two weeks the weather is blamed for at least 55 deaths around the country. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The federal government remains open for now. That's thanks to a stopgap spending bill passed by Congress this week. Congressman Jim McGovern says while it is a relief, the body has a lot of work to do to get back on track. WBUR's Amanda Beeland. McGovern says a group of far-right Republicans are preventing compromise, with Democrats doing everything they can to reach it. Should we agree to deep cuts in WIC, the Women's Infants and Children's Program? Should we agree to deeper cuts in environmental protection or, or basically cut the infrastructure monies that are helping to rebuild our country? We have given, we have moved, we have given all that we can. When asked on WBUR's Radio Boston if he thinks it's possible that the House will remain deadlocked until after the November election, McGovern said sadly yes. We have some serious issues that need to be addressed. Lawmakers have until March to avoid another shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. The MBTA is announcing more planned service disruptions in order to repair sections of the subway. The red line between Alwife and Harvard will shut down for 10 days starting February 5th. An 18-day shutdown of the BC and D branches of the Green Line starts on February 20th. With the extremely low temperatures, it might take longer than usual to fully charge electric vehicles. AAA Northeast spokesperson Mark Shieldrop says our first major cold snap is not causing the major delays at charging stations in other parts of the country. Most EV owners are plugging in at home and their batteries are going to be warmed overnight. The cars have systems in place to keep that battery uh, conditioned. So that way when folks are leaving in the morning, the car is warmed up and fully charged. Shieldrop says if your EV is outside for extended periods in the extreme cold, it will take longer to charge at the public charging stations. A 2013 Boston Marathon runner who became a symbol of resilience when he was thrown to the ground after the first bomb exploded has died. Bill Ifrig was 89 years old. 20 degrees in Boston at 5.06. Stay with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The civilian toll in Gaza is rapidly approaching another gruesome milestone as Israel's war against Hamas grinds on. Nearly 25,000 people have now died, according to the Ministry of Health in Gaza, the majority of whom are women and children. Meanwhile, there are growing fears that the conflict could widen throughout the region following a strike in Syria earlier today that killed several Iranian military advisors. Joining me to discuss the latest from Tel Aviv is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Hey, Jeff. Hi there, Scott. So we'll get to that strike in a minute. But first, what is the latest from Gaza? Yeah, it's been another bloody week of fighting in Gaza where the Israeli military continues to battle Hamas. That fight began in October after Hamas attacked Israel, killing 1,200 people. And, you know, Israel says its goal is to eradicate the organization. According to Gaza's Ministry of Health, around 150 people are dying each day in the conflict as a result of direct military action by Israel. And the Israeli military announced the deaths of eight more soldiers this week. So active fighting still going on. Many people have moved to the south of the Strip to try and stay safe. How are things looking there? 
Not good. Yeah. Not good at all. Um, there are around 1.7 million residents who've been forced into tents and other temporary living situations down there. And the United Nations says things are getting worse for them as well. They're crammed together. They don't have access to clean water. And that means diseases like hepatitis A are on the rise. And they're hungry. Hundreds of thousands of people in Gaza are at risk of famine. That's all according to the UN agency responsible for Gaza. Our producer, Anas Baba, is in Gaza. And he spoke today with Numan Kabaja, a 30-year-old father of five, and here's what he had to say. He says, my children are hungry and my wife is hungry. We're all hungry and our relatives have been killed and our brothers have been killed. Enough. We are tired. We are tired. Now, there has been some good news in recent days. Gaza's internet and cell phone service appears to be back after an outage of more than a week. That's thanks to telecom workers still in the Strip who have gone into combat zones to make repairs. And NPR has also been told that Israel plans to allow a significant amount of flour to enter Gaza in coming days. But there's a long way to go before things turn a corner. So that's Gaza where where the fighting is happening and and many, many people are being killed. Uh, Beyond the Gaza Strip, what else is going on that we need to know about? Well, here in Tel Aviv, there was a big protest calling for new elections. That's because President Benjamin Netanyahu is becoming increasingly unpopular as this war drags on. And just now, he may have managed to strain relations with President Biden, too. In a post on social media um, on the platform X, just a few hours ago, he rejected the idea of a Palestinian state. Mm. That, of course, is central to Biden's plans for the region. Right. And then we have these airstrikes in Syria. Um, This morning, an attack on an apartment building in Damascus killed five members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. Iran blamed Israel for the strike. The Israeli military declined to comment. But this comes just weeks after an Iranian missile struck what it claimed to be an Israeli intelligence post in Iraq. Right. And and this has all led to fears that the war in Gaza could grow into a wider regional conflict. Is this another sign that it is, in fact, moving in that direction? I spoke to Ali Baez. He's the director of the Iran Project at the International Crisis Group. And he told me this was a really significant strike because so many members of the Revolutionary Guard were killed. Uh, It is really starting to escalate and um, could uh, spiral out of control at any moment. And in fact, there's just been reports of an attack on an Iraqi airbase where American troops are stationed. Rockets or missiles were fired towards the base. There appear to be some U.S. troops wounded, an official tells NPR. We don't know yet who was behind it, but the same base has been attacked multiple times since the outbreak of the war in Gaza, and it was struck by Iran back in 2020. All right, something to keep an eye on. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's trials. It's been a week where Trump racked up a big political win in the Iowa caucuses. Clear evidence that Republican voters, at least, are buying his argument that the 91 criminal counts he's facing don't really matter. And the way that Trump politicizes his legal cases and goes on the attack seems to be paying off, too. One of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case has made some serious allegations about Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and whether she had an improper relationship with a prosecutor, Nathan Wade, who she hired for the case. The co-defendant has not presented any evidence, but documents have now surfaced showing that Wade purchased airline tickets for a trip with Willis 
And the charge has cast a huge shadow over the case, especially in the absence of a clear denial from Willis. Now, a Georgia judge has scheduled a February hearing on the matter. A lot to discuss, as always, it seems. And I'm joined again by my colleague, senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. And along with Domenico Montanaro, we are joined by NPR Justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson. Hey, Carrie. Hey there. So I want to start with the latest news out of this Georgia election case, as, as we were talking about involving District Attorney Fonnie Willis and this accusation of improper conduct. This week, the judge in that case scheduled a hearing in February to hear evidence surrounding some pretty serious accusations. I mean, she's essentially being accused of giving her boyfriend a job. We don't know if they had a relationship at this point, but it's a serious accusation. And, and why does it carry so much weight? It carries so much weight because this is one of the potentially most damaging criminal cases against the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. This is squarely about whether he interfered with the last election and tried to overturn it, pressuring state officials in Georgia, allegedly conspiring with others in the state and of submitting uh, fake slates of electors. You know, these are very, very serious allegations against the former president. And instead of talking about what Donald Trump allegedly did, we're now talking about what the district attorney and her special prosecutor may have done. And that's just bad news for the case, for sure. And the charges remain the charges. This doesn't change any of the facts that Trump would would eventually face a trial for. But is it fair to say that this just cast an enormous pall over the prosecution's case at this point? An enormous shadow. You know, one of the co-defendants of Donald Trump, Mike Roman, has actually filed court papers trying to get this case tossed out altogether against Mike Roman and trying to disqualify Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade from participating in this prosecution, trying to get the entire Fulton County DA's office knocked off the case, in fact. So this is really serious stuff. Trump's lawyer in Georgia has suggested he's reviewing the allegations and may uh, potentially join in that motion. Uh, So this could be a cascading series of problems for the district attorney's office that would really benefit Donald Trump in the media atmosphere. And we know he's seizing on it already. Yeah. And Domenico, we we had talked last week about how Trump and his allies were were trying to use this to undermine the case. You were with me Monday night as we were covering caucus results. Uh, We were interviewing uh, a spokesperson for Trump's campaign. And he repeatedly over and over and over every question I had about the the seriousness of the charges. he, he, He brought up these Willis allegations. That's that's certainly going to continue from Trump and everybody else. Absolutely. Especially anybody who's supporting Trump, you know, looking to keep him where he is in the Republican primary, insulated from some of these charges, claiming that they're witch hunts, painting himself to be a victim. And this just further helps to muddy up what was and is a sprawling case. Domenico, there's a lot of political fallout from this this vacuum that's been created. I think one of the more interesting ones is that Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, who, despite his opposition to Trump's efforts to overturn the election, is a pretty conservative guy. And he, up until this point, had mostly defended or at least not criticized Willis and her charges against Trump. And he is is now raising some serious questions and saying what's going on here. So I think you're, you're, you're seeing her lose some of her at least subtle allies in Georgia who are pretty key here. Well, they want to see the prosecution go forward and not have there be some massive distraction where Trump gets off the hook because of uh, something like this, you know, and Willis claiming, you know, racist or misogynistic attacks, those things may very well be true, but it sort of misreads the politics like you're talking about with somebody like Kemp, who she needs to keep on board, you know, and not addressing the allegations 
head on really kind of mucks things up, allows Trump's team to muddy the waters, question Willis's character and ethics, just as she's trying to take on this sweeping case. You know, now, even if she is having a relationship with someone who works with her, as inappropriate as that might be, it really says nothing about whether Trump is guilty of the crimes he's being accused of trying to overturn the election results. But it's an unwelcome distraction for her. And the case could, you know, this could lead to delays in a case that Willis had wanted to begin a trial for on August 5th. And, and before we shift gears, just, just one more contextual thing here, Carrie. I think we, we kind of mentioned it in passing, but just to underscore, to remind people who aren't as up to speed, this matters because this was an outside lawyer brought in to handle this case who has been paid uh, legal fees in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. An outside lawyer who's well known in Fulton County, but hasn't done a lot of major league criminal cases like this one, this big racketeering case against the former president and many of his associates. And the guy's gotten $650,000 in payments. And the allegation from one of these defendants, co-defendants of Donald Trump, is that um, Fonnie Willis uh, may have... uh, taken steps in the investigation that benefited uh, Nathan Wade financially and may have benefited her. And so there's a serious legal and ethical issue here. It may not result in the dismissal of any of these charges, but it certainly is going to require a response from both of these prosecutors. Carrie Johnson, National Justice Correspondent, thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. And Domenico Montanaro, Senior Political Editor and Correspondent. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience. A one man, one audience show. Experience The Huntington like never before in the intimate Masso Studio, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 3rd. Tickets and more info at HuntingtonTheater.org. At WBUR, we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, WBUR.org. And stay with us at 6 today for the Moth Radio Hour. It's on every Saturday night. It runs until 8. 20 degrees at 518. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, where families play and create together. Make your winter special with a visit to the museum. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The U.S. Central Command says its forces destroyed an anti-ship missile today that had been aimed at the Gulf of Aden. Houthi rebels based in Yemen and backed by Iran have been firing drones and missiles at ships in the region for weeks, causing many major shipping lines to find other, more costly routes.
Tens of thousands of people in Germany marched in cities across that country today protesting the far-right movement. It's the latest in a series that's been gaining momentum in recent days. More protests are expected tomorrow. And the International Space Station welcomed four new crew members today after the crew of the Dragon capsule docked with the orbiting outpost earlier today. The astronauts include the first one from Turkey. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. On this day, four years ago, scientists at the CDC discovered the first case of COVID-19 in the United States. A resident of Washington state in the Seattle area is infected. At that point, the new virus and the illness it caused were a mystery. And as the years have gone on, we have learned more and more but one of the biggest remaining unknowns is long COVID, that constellation of symptoms that plagues some people but not others long after an infection. So where do things stand with long COVID now? That was the topic of a Senate hearing held on Thursday. NPR health reporter Will Stone covers long COVID and joins us now. Hey, Will. Hey, Scott. And before we get into that hearing, um, you're based in Seattle and you were on the ground covering those very early first known cases of COVID, right? I was. Uh, you know, many of us have our first COVID memories, uh, that moment when it suddenly became very real. For me, it was rushing to the Washington Public Health Laboratory and sitting there. No one was wearing masks yet. And the governor and health officials talked about this first case. Um, and if you recall, it wouldn't be until later in February that we actually realized there were more cases in Washington and elsewhere in the country that had no connection to overseas travel. Yeah. And since then, You've been covering long COVID for years now. Uh, you were watching this recent Senate hearing. What stood out to you? More than anything, I would say the very fact that this took place, that it was well attended, uh, senators were engaged, that visibility was a big deal. Many of those who have long COVID, they've been ill for months, even years. Their lives have been upended and they feel forgotten. I'm thinking about people like Rachel Beal, who's had long COVID for almost three years. She lives in Virginia and spoke at the hearing. I had a very full life before I got sick. Long COVID has affected every part of my life now. I wake up every day feeling tired, nauseous, and dizzy. I immediately start planning when I can lay down again. And frankly, Scott, this kind of story is pretty common in the world of long COVID. So it was significant that Senator Bernie Sanders kicked off this hearing by calling long COVID a crisis. How far along are scientists in understanding this illness at this point? Well, to put it simply, they still don't know the underlying cause of this illness. And to be fair, this is complex, painstaking work. Lots of scientists are working on it. And in fact, no one really thinks this is just one illness. There are very likely different causes and different people. And in the past year, there have been some meaningful advances in the science, uh, findings related to changes in hormones, evidence of a chronic viral infection, immune dysregulation, a buildup of tiny blood clots. There are lots of different fronts here. 
That said, there are still no validated treatments for the condition. And this is a point Dr. Ziad Al-Ali made at the hearing. He's at Washington University in St. Louis. This must change. We really need to change this. It's not beyond the might and the prowess of American medicine to solve this problem. He wants to see the might and prowess of American medicine, which, you know, after all, got us those vaccines very mm -hmm. quickly, go toward long COVID. And basically, the message from scientists is that there need to be more rigorous clinical trials testing different treatments. And again, we're talking about a Senate hearing here. So remind, remind us what the role of the federal government is in all of this. Yeah, I'd say number one, it's resources. Patient advocates and researchers want to see more money and coordination coming from the government. Uh, take a listen to this exchange between Senator Bernie Sanders and the panel of doctors and scientists. I'm assuming that all of you believe that the federal government has got to play a much more active role with substantial sums of money for research, development, clinical trials, et cetera. Is that Absolutely, yes, yes. No doubt. All right. <laughs> now, I will say Congress did allocate more than a billion dollars for long COVID research. Uh, that supported a huge initiative called Recover, but there has been a growing criticism about how that money was spent, that it hasn't led to meaningful breakthroughs. Earlier this month, before the hearing, I spoke to Dr. Admiral Rachel Levine about these concerns. Levine is Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. I want to emphasize that there is a lot of money going for research. Um, as the NIH has pointed out, that money has been allocated, but the research continues. There was some new funding announced by the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, recently. But, you know, patient advocates say a problem of this magnitude doesn't get solved without billions of dollars more in funding. Is there a big picture way to frame how patients are, are, are doing this many years in? Scott, I'll say the testimony really underscored just how hard it is to navigate the healthcare system with this illness. Uh, many doctors aren't familiar with it. Some patients still aren't believed. Long COVID clinics can be hard to get into, and doctors, they can treat symptoms, but you know, as we said earlier, there are no approved treatments. So. Overall, there's a sense that if things don't change, it could take a long time for scientists to get to the bottom of this and for patients to get the care they need. That's NPR's Will Stone. Thanks so much. Thank you. Over the past several decades, debates between presidential candidates have produced memorable moments, moments that have bolstered, reshaped, and even ended campaigns. There was a zinger from the 1984 presidential debate between Republican Ronald Reagan and Democrat Walter Mondale. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Reagan, who had faced questions about his age, ended up winning 49 states that year. Then there was this less auspicious moment during a Republican primary debate in 2011 when then-Texas Governor Rick Perry couldn't remember the third government agency he said he had planned to cut. No, sir. You can't name the third one? The third agency of government, yeah. I, would, I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see, I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Perry washed out of the race. Zingers and gaffes aside, debates can also get pretty heated. Listen to this exchange during the 1988 vice presidential debate between Senator Dan Quayle and Senator Lloyd Benson. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. 
Then there was 2020, the first general election debate between then-President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden went off the rails when Trump wouldn't stop interrupting. The question is, the new question Supreme is, Court Justice, the radical question, left. Will you who shut is up, your, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list? Right. Gentlemen, this is, I think this we've is ended so this. He's going to pack the court. We have end, oh, no, no. But now this practice could be fading away. Former President Donald Trump has refused to participate in the Republican primary debates, the norm-breaking president blowing up yet another norm. And this week, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said she would no longer participate in debates as well since Trump wasn't there. When it comes to the general election, the Republican National Committee has taken a hard stance on who they want to see moderating these debates, and Joe Biden's campaign has yet to commit to them, so they may not happen. The prospect of that is something I talked about with Aaron Call. He's the director of debate at the University of Michigan. I mostly want to zoom out and talk about debates as a whole and, and this broader trend. But, of course, this came after a series of Republican primary debates that, that Trump skipped entirely. You saw viewership drop and drop and drop as that trend continues. In just looking at the 2024 primary cycle, did you see any value in the debates that were held with Haley and DeSantis and the others when they were still in the race? Definitely. It was frustrating that the frontrunner Trump didn't participate uh, in them. But even without him, I, thought, I do think that they were valuable. Um, going back to the first one in Milwaukee in August, uh, it still, even without him, drew about 12 and a half million uh, viewers, which is pretty good for a primary debate. Uh, had a much larger debate stage uh, at the beginning. But I think you could see the impact just in this cycle they had, even without Trump. Uh, Nikki Haley, part of the reason now she's in the upper tier and you know, very competitive in, in New Hampshire is is debates. She started out just polling in the low single digits, was all the way off on the side at the first debate in Milwaukee, but did very strong, held her own, and people liked what they saw and kind of gave her campaign a, a second chance and really helped her, where conversely, someone like Tim Scott came in with a lot of fanfare, but just wasn't very natural on the debate stage, kind of disappeared, uh, made some uh, gaffes, and his campaign didn't last very long. We saw that in previous cycles. So just like in previous cycles, yes, I do think this the, the five debates that we had and even the wild card with uh, DeSantis and Newsom, I thought they were, they were very valuable, but they were much less watched this time and didn't have the front runner participating. What else do you think voters lose if this trend continues and debates become more of an endangered species? Because there's the cynical view that these aren't actually debates. These are just people repeating stump speeches, regardless of what the question is, like kind of parallel stump speeches that you see sometimes. But on the other hand, there's a lot of conversation about policy in a way that doesn't seem to make its way into other parts of a campaign. Like if debates would be gone, what would voters miss? Yeah, I think that you know the candidates really have to subject themselves and put themselves out um, in these debates and they would be invaluable and, and missed a lot if they totally went away. Um, you, you're on a stage for two hours, depending on how many candidates there are. You don't know how much time you're going to get or when you're going to be called upon. So you really have to stay engaged and you're and on your toes throughout the debate. Um, moderators can ask some excellent questions, uh, ones that hadn't been on the campaign trail or maybe some of the candidates hadn't thought about before. And you're really you're seeing the candidates process that and come up with an answer in real time, how quickly they can think on their feet. Um, just those are all kind of qualities that I think voters, undecided voters especially, um, want to get out of. Um, their presidential candidates, um, especially if, to see if there was a crisis, international crisis that happened in the middle of the night and the president had to deal with that. How they operate in a two-hour debate with other very accomplished candidates gives them a real 
big insight to that. In the last Republican cycle, I think there was about 13 total debates going all the way through March, and you'd have them right before voting um, commenced in, in important states. And those um, sometimes we'd talk about important issues specific to voters of those states. And so we're going to you know, miss out on those if the last one we had was just in Iowa. How concerned are you about the, the future of the general election debates? In 2020, one of them was skipped. Uh, the first one was unique. I'll put it that way. Uh, the third one was 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 surprisingly typical, I think, given, given those other two. But right now we're talking about the Republican National Committee having a real skeptical stance of, of how and when their candidate would participate in these debates. And you have Joe Biden's campaign also not committed to them. How worried are you that they just won't happen? I'm, I'd say, mildly concerned. Um, you, as you mentioned, we just had two last time. Uh, there was some uh, consternation over format and the moderator for one of them. But yeah, I think it, the Nikki Haley's decision to kind of not debate in these may make that even a little bit more likely because just kind of normalizes a, a little bit more. And and yeah, I mean, certainly President Biden could say, you know, well, uh, Donald Trump didn't participate in debates in the in the primary. So, you know, why should I debate him now? Uh, and that's something the RNC had warned um, Trump about when trying to get him to do at least those early debates that if you don't do that, there will be a risk that you may not have general election debates. Uh, there's also controversy over those. Um, the RNC specifically not liking the commissional presidential debates. They've been involved in these for the last several decades and the moderators they select and who's on their board and things like that. But you know, Trump hasn't signed that pledge, and so he's not technically bound to it. And if Trump decides that he wants to debate, the RNC is going to get in line there. And at least as of now, all indications are he wants to debate in the general election. He doesn't want to date in the primary because there's he's up a lot and doesn't want to kind of dignify the other candidates that are on stage, but thinks there'd be a lot of value in debating 81-year-old um, President Biden, thinks he could maybe commit a gaffe uh, that would be disqualifying. And so you know, a little yet to be seen. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of pressure to do it, especially at the presidential level, and hopefully we'll get at least two like we did last time. But just like the, these past primary ones were canceled, know that there's a, a chance that we may not um, have them, which would be a shame. I mean, we went a large period without having them. Um, after the, the Kennedy-Nixon debates all the way through 1976, there was a period of about 15, 16 years where there were no presidential debates. And so I definitely don't want to return to a time like that. That was Aaron Call, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. President Biden's decision to not run in this Tuesday's New Hampshire primary and New Hampshire's commitment to honor the state law that requires it to vote first 
has shaped, maybe even warped, the 2024 Democratic primary there. It's also prompted some Democrats to mount a write-in campaign on the president's behalf, something that hasn't been seen in decades. Josh Rogers of New Hampshire Public Radio reports. There are moments when this Democratic primary can feel almost normal, like when Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey visited Democrats in Concord for a pre-primary pep talk. Her message was straightforward, run up the vote total for Joe Biden. Let's have an overwhelming showing like never seen before and let that send a signal across the country because people pay attention to New Hampshire. But President Biden himself isn't paying attention. He declined to even put his name on the ballot here when New Hampshire refused to follow the DNC calendar he proposed that put South Carolina at the head of the 2024 Democratic nominating queue. That move was a gut punch to Democrats here. It also created an opening for Democrats mounting long shot challenges to Biden. Joe Biden should have been right here with us today. I agree with that. He, he is taking the Granite State for granted. That was Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips and author Marianne Williamson debating in Manchester. But the barbs on this front aren't all heading the president's way. The DNC wrote to Democrats here this month to stress the January 23rd primary is, quote, meaningless as far as choosing a nominee. Right as New Hampshire Democrats who support Biden are going all out to boost his fortunes here, as in this TV ad paid for by a write-in Biden super PAC. Voting for Biden is easy. Start at the bottom of the ballot. Fill in the oval for write-in. And write-in Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. It's all on the line. A separate write-in Biden entity is meanwhile focusing on face-to-face outreach, Zoom meetups, and deploying volunteers to reach Democrats wherever they congregate. I will do whatever I can because I'm a true Democrat. More Willing of Concord was putting the arm on attendees at a state Democratic Party fundraiser. Willing backed Elizabeth Warren over Biden in the 2020 primary, but says her view of Biden has since changed. I mean, I remember at the time thinking, oh, what a sweet old man. And now he's a good president. And I don't have a problem with him not thinking we're the most important thing on the planet. But as a New Hampshire voter, I want to show him that we've got his back. New Hampshire Democrats may. Recent polling shows plenty of Democratic primary voters here do plan to write in Biden, but some have other ideas. George Bruno, a former state Democratic Party chairman, decided to register as an independent to vote against Donald Trump in the Republican primary. Here in New Hampshire, independents can vote in the primary of their choosing. Bruno thinks Biden's been fine as president, but... I never thought of him as a two-term, eight-year president. And I was kind of hoping that there would be more competition for the nomination this year. I regret that there isn't. Write-in organizers, meanwhile, think a strong showing here for Biden will help make the case that New Hampshire deserves to return to the front of the DNC's nominating calendar come 2028. But for right now, Concord lobbyist Jim Demers hopes a write-in effort can give Democrats generally something to build on after the primary. I think this effort really does lay the foundation because it's getting people engaged. It's, you know, organizing people. And I think it will all be helpful when the November election comes about. And that's something pretty much every New Hampshire Democrat, whether they back Biden's write-in or not, will tell you they'd welcome. For NPR News, I'm Josh Rogers in Concord. This is NPR News. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. And we thank you for spending part of your weekend with 90.9 WBUR and for listening every day. The latest news is at the start of every hour. I'm Susan Levy. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary votes. On Tuesday, live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primary starts at 7. Right here on 90.9 WBUR, get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. 17 degrees at 539. The wind chill value right now is 2 degrees. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are campaigning, making last-minute appeals for votes days before the New Hampshire primary that takes place next Tuesday. Iran says it's launched a satellite into its highest orbit yet. State TV says the launch is part of the space program of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. This comes amid heightened tensions over the war in the region and just days after Iran and Pakistan engaged in tit-for-tat airstrikes. And a tutu worn by actress Sarah Jessica Parker in the TV series Sex and the City has a new owner. The airy ballet skirt in white tulle went for a cool $52,000 at an auction in Los Angeles. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. A year and a half ago, in the summer of 2022, a sheriff from upstate New York shared a photo of himself online. He was holding an award from the Oath Keepers, the far-right militia group at the center of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That photo caught the attention of two reporters who cover upstate New York, and it kicked off a months-long investigation into the far-right landscape there. That reporting is now the subject of a new podcast called If All Else Fails from North Country Public Radio. And the hosts of that podcast are Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch, who join us now. Hey there. Hey, Scott. Scott. Thanks for for being here. And before we dive into the story here and the the far-right's presence, set the broader scene for us. The podcast is about upstate New York, specifically a part of the region called the North Country. Tell us about that area, Emily. It's a massive part of northern New York, and it's really similar to other parts of rural America. It's pretty remote. Not that many people live here. Population has actually been dwindling. It's Mm -hmm. very white, working class, and we've seen the region get more conservative in recent years, with some people embracing far-right ideas and groups. And like you said, these are trends we're seeing in so many parts of the country right now. Um, let's talk about that that sheriff that I mentioned that kicked off the series. Zach, what did you find when you started to investigate Lewis County Sheriff Mike Carpinelli? Yeah, so 
Uh, Sheriff Carpinelli, we found he does have real connections to the Oath Keepers militia. He had contact with that group's founder, Stuart Rhodes. The summer after January 6th, Carpinelli emailed Rhodes saying he'd been to a rally to support people arrested for the Capitol attack. We also found Carpinelli has ties to a group called the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Experts say that group is radicalizing sheriffs across the country, teaching them they don't have to follow laws they think are unconstitutional. Interesting. And by the way, we I, sh- I just want to say we reached out to Carpinelli uh, a lot of times, and he declined our interview request. Okay, well, that's a, that's a good thing to flag up top as, as we keep going. But I mean, you, you're talking about kind of this, this broad push, uh, you know, not following laws that you personally think are unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Emily, how, how does this far right mentality impact people in the area? Yeah. In the last decade, some sheriffs from upstate New York, including Mike Carpinelli, have refused to enforce some state gun laws. That impacts people. We also saw that mentality play out during the pandemic. Sheriffs refused to enforce some health mandates. Here's part of our one of our episodes, which starts with Sheriff Carpinelli at a county meeting during the pandemic. For all of us to be such sheep and be in such fear is absolutely ridiculous. Now you're going to use a law enforcement official to try to get people to stay in their house. Not a chance from this guy. Then last summer, he waded into the culture war battle over gender identity in schools. In a Facebook Live interview, Carpinelli referred to gender policies as, quote, mind control. If any parent goes to school, they find out that, that the administration is pushing this pedophile, this, this, this anti-gender crap about who they are and what they are, and a parent feels that their child has been endangered by the school system, We'll send down a deputy or an investigator, and we will arrest that school teacher. Carpinelli is suggesting he could arrest someone for teaching something he doesn't agree with, not for something that's against the law. I mean, to me, as a scholar who studies these things, it smacks of authoritarianism, right? That's Joe Henderson. He's a professor at Paul Smith's College in the Adirondacks. It's this kind of belief that, like, you should be deferential to certain kinds of authority, and, like, anybody who deviates from that authority, like, needs to be punished. Henderson and others who study extremism say this is why this kind of rhetoric matters. He says it's a local authority picking and choosing which laws to enforce, leaving an entire population potentially at the mercy of one person's ideology. How does somebody, on the one hand, believe that the government shouldn't tread on them while also being literally an agent of the state? And the way that's a smooth ideology, right, is that you believe that your interpretation of the state is the correct one. That's one excerpt of a podcast called If All Else Fails from North Country Public Radio. And and Zach, I just, just want to reiterate that this isn't just about one particular person. This is about a lot of broader trends that, that, that you've found as you've looked into this. What else did you uncover in this podcast? Yeah, so zooming out, we found that all kinds of extremist groups have tried to recruit in upstate New York, from the infamous Ku Klux Klan to newer groups like Patriot Front and the Proud Boys. Some have marched in the streets and posted flyers. And top security officials and experts have taken notice. They're concerned about these groups. But we also learned that there are way more people who never join a formal group. Yeah, and let's talk about another episode and another person you looked at. Uh, Emily, this this episode profiles a man from upstate who went to prison for January 6th. Tell us about this. His name is James Bonet. He's in his early 30s. And he used to be a a left-leaning Bernie bro. Those are his words. 
But a few years ago, he went down a rabbit hole. He started listening to some podcasts, a lot of which push far right conspiracy theories about things like climate change and also the idea that there's a, a deep state. And eventually, James Bonet came to believe that the 2020 election was stolen. So he drove all the way down to D.C. from upstate New York. And on January 6th, he went into the Capitol. And today, he's more convinced in conspiracy theories, like the claim that anyone who was violent on January 6th was only trying to make Trump supporters look bad. Here's another excerpt from the podcast. They don't even look like Americans. They look, they literally look like they went to the Halloween store and like, let me look like a patriot. They don't even look like real Americans. They look honestly like FBI. Do you have evidence for that? No, it's just what my instinct tells me and I trust my instinct. That's yet another viral conspiracy theory, which the head of the FBI described as ludicrous. A congressional investigation and hundreds of prosecutions found no evidence that the FBI or far-left groups orchestrated the attack. More than a thousand people were arrested for participating in January 6th, including dozens of New Yorkers. People from Watertown, Buffalo, Rochester, Long Island, and New York City. Hundreds of people ended up with prison time nationwide, including James Bonet. He was originally charged with a felony, but he took a deal and pleaded guilty to unlawful entry in a restricted building, a misdemeanor. Bonet says his sentence was a surprise, but he went in thinking of himself as a patriot. During the American Revolutionary War, some of our founding fathers were imprisoned, and I thought... If they could survive that, then I could survive three months or 72 days in prison. So that was my mentality going through it. Do you regret being part of that day, the insurrection? I don't even, I wouldn't even call it, I'm not going to call it an insurrection or give it power like that. But um, no, I don't. We're listening to excerpts from a new podcast called If All Else Fails. And I just want to like stick on this point for a moment. This is somebody who participated in January 6th seems unapologetic about it, and yet at the same time is knee-deep in conspiracy theories about what actually happened that day, even though he was there and saw it in person for himself. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable to hear. And, you know, he really sees himself as a patriot in that moment. And it's something we heard from other folks we talked to, you know, who believe in some of these conspiracy theories and are part of some of these far-right groups and militias. You know, they believe they're the true patriots in this moment. I mean, for both of you, what were your big takeaways from this close look at the far right and its presence in the North Country? Well, one key takeaway and something we highlight at the end is that there are dots that connect what might seem like separate factions of the far right. So the series mentions the KKK, anti-government militias, constitutional sheriffs, anti-immigrant groups. In our reporting, we found there's kind of a common theme here. It's about not just power, but control. And it's about who this country is really for, who we the people are. And a lot of the time in these far-right movements, that, that vision of the country is deeply Christian and white. And another thing, physical violence from far-right extremism appears pretty rare in upstate New York. But, you know, as we've seen in the past with the racist mass shooting in Buffalo back in 2022, when 10 Black people were murdered at a supermarket, just one person who's been radicalized can do a tremendous amount of damage. And then looking at January 6th, you know, just a handful of people from the North Country that we know of took part in that day. 
But you take just a handful of people from every region around the country, and suddenly you have a mob of thousands that can threaten the political system and democracy in the United States. Yeah. That was Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch, their hosts of the podcast, If All Else Fails, from North Country Public Radio. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks. Thank you. And finally, let's talk football. The NFL playoffs continue this weekend in the divisional round. It's down to eight teams, including some postseason regulars like the Chiefs and some teams that are usually on the beach this late in the winter. And I am looking at you, Detroit Lions. Here to break down what to expect, we've called Lindsay Jones. She's a senior editor at the sports news outlet The Ringer, where she covers the NFL. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks for having me. So we've got some classic rivalries this weekend, like Packers 49ers. We've got some of the more recent big rivalries, like Chiefs-Bills. I mentioned that surprising Lions run. What storyline this weekend are you most interested in and excited about? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Chiefs-Bills, and this is really becoming kind of a, you know, the Brady-Manning of uh, a new generation between Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. This is going to be the third time that these two quarterbacks have met in the playoffs, but it's the first time that this game is happening in Buffalo. Yeah. So, you know, the a couple of years ago in the divisional round, these two guys, these two teams played one of the most memorable postseason games that I've ever seen, probably a lot of people have ever seen. So we're really hoping that, you know, this could be another classic matchup. And of course, we saw the Bills fans out there, some of them shirtless, clearing off the snow before <laughs> yes. this weekend. I mean, you, you mentioned Chiefs Bills. Uh, unlike unlike those 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 Manning Brady rivalries in the past, like the Chiefs have had the upper edge by by far here. The Bills have kind of come up short in the playoffs over and over again. Is this the make or break window moment for the Bills this year? Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like that in the in the sense that, you know, they've kind of been this runner-up team in the AFC, you know, kind of the, the second-best team during this Mahomes era. And, yeah, this really feels like they've kind of, you know, they've been building to try to win a Super Bowl. It's been a really rocky year for them. Uh, about six weeks ago, it seemed really unlikely that they were going to make the playoffs at all. And yet here they are hosting the divisional round, a win away from the AFC championship game. So, you know, and the Chiefs have had a little bit of a down year. The Bills did beat Kansas City in Kansas Kansas City earlier this year. Mm -hmm. So I know in Buffalo, they're really excited that this is the year that they're finally going to knock off Mahomes in the postseason. And I think a lot of casual sports fans are much more aware of who has been showing up at Chiefs games than the on the field performance this season. But I mean, what's what's the biggest difference from the Chiefs this season compared to recent Super Bowl runs? Yeah, they just don't have kind of the juice at the skill position players when it comes to wide receivers, especially Travis Kelsey. Uh, you know, that's the first time we've mentioned Kelsey and mm -hmm. uh, Taylor, you know, Taylor Swift's boyfriend. He really is their most important offensive weapon. And the receivers outside of him have really let the team down a lot this season. So that's really been the biggest change. I mean, I think if you're kind of a casual football fan, you're used to seeing the Chiefs just, you know, explosive plays and really big passing yardage. And that just hasn't been the style of this team this year and if they're going to win they're going to need a big game from Kelsey um, and they're probably going to have to win with their defense Let's go over the NFC for a moment the, the Detroit Lions definitely the feel good story this season if they can pull it out this is a team of perennial underachievement never been to the Super Bowl their wild card victory last week was their first playoff win in more than 30 years how far do you think the, the Lions can go? Yeah, I mean, the, as you said, last week, they got their first um, postseason win in about three decades, which was really incredible. They're really the kind of the most lovable, likable team in this postseason. If you don't have a team that you already like, you, I, I think a lot of casual fans will find themselves rooting for Detroit right now because it is such a great story. But um, they've got a really good offense. 
their defense has been kind of shaky, but they tend to come through in the big moments. And, you know, they're getting a second home playoff game. And a week ago, they didn't necessarily expect this. But the fact that the Cowboys lost last week really clears the path for them to get to the NFC Championship game. Sure, they have to beat the Bucks first. Yeah. And, you know, the you know, Baker Mayfield, their quarterback, their offense played pretty well last week when they beat the Eagles. But, you know, Detroit has, you know, they're, they're not this, like, lovable loser anymore. Like, they are a formidable team. And it would just be a really fun story to see them advance to the NFC Championship game next week. You mentioned the Cowboys losing last week there were a couple of upsets the Packers beating the Cowboys was one of them you know there's been so much focus in other sports particularly baseball about how regular season records just seem to have no bearing on the postseason anymore is that the case in football or is it the teams generally with the best regular season record that are making the deep runs yeah, I mean, having a bye in the first, getting the number one seed and having a bye the first round of the playoffs is really, really helpful. You can avoid kind of that sort of upset. The Cowboys' loss last week was pretty monumental. They were the first number two seed to lose in the new format of the playoffs since the, the NFL expanded the postseason field. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the NFL is, I think there's a lot more parity in the mm. NFL. So, you know, the, the gap between the best teams and the worst teams, especially in the postseason field, I don't think is as big. Um but, you know, this is the weekend. Divisional round is my favorite weekend of football of the year because the games tend to be a lot better. They tend to be a lot more, uh, a lot closer, a lot more competitive. And we'll see if the Packers, who pulled off one set of, one upset already, if they can do, that, uh, do it again or at least keep it close against the Niners. we got about 30 seconds left. What are the biggest questions that you're hoping this weekend's games can answer for you? Yeah, I mean, I think like the Bills Chiefs who wins that game, I think is just going to tell us a lot about those two franchises. Um, but otherwise, this is just an awesome quarterback field. It's really interesting where, you know, Lamar Jackson is playing. We've got Brock Purdy, who has, I think, a lot to prove uh, with, with the 49ers, Jordan Love. We've just got this really interesting quarterback field where we're going to learn a lot about some of the, the best young quarterbacks in this league. That's Lindsey Jones, senior editor at The Ringer. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.